Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. I wouldn't say we fell in love right away. I think we were, as they call it in the biz, trauma bonding. And then after eight years of being insufferably sober, I started drinking again. Addicts tend to be rather sensitive people. Aren't you Mark Maron? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, what happened to you? Welcome to Light Hustler Podcast, all about addiction recovery and sharing your dark to find your light. I'm your host, Anna David. Welcome to the show if you are new. Um, If you're not new, you know I'm a little bit of a tech disaster. And right now I have lost my um, iPhone holder, which should make this video look a little bit better than it does. I apologize. Anyway, we made it to 2019. This is a podcast where people tell stories about addiction recovery and I do interviews. Today we have an interview with Annie Grace, the author of This Naked Mind. Fascinating woman, fascinating book, fascinating conversation, but I also want to tell you, yes, you, you can sign up for my webinar, How to Become a Best-Selling Author. I give away all the tips, tricks, techniques I've used to become a New York Times best-selling author and a number one Amazon best-selling author. Go to annadavid.com to sign up. It is Sunday, January 13th at five o'clock Pacific Standard Time, 45 minutes. And if you have ever toyed with the idea of writing a book, if you've written a book or if you've published a book and it just didn't do as well as you wanted it to do, I highly recommend showing up. Again, go to annadavid.com to sign up and it's Sunday, January 13th, 2019. If you missed it, I'm so, so sorry. Now listen to Annie Gray. Okay, any jackass fans out there, you don't really need to answer me. I'm not really with you, even though it feels like we're together. But the reason I ask is this. My friend and previous podcast guest, Brandon Novak, is a former jackasser, and he works with a specific rehab that I am thrilled to say is now the exclusive advertiser on this podcast. If you're not familiar with Novak, please get with it. Professional skateboarder, MTV star, got it all while he was nursing a horrible opiate addiction. Now he's three years sober and runs community outreach at none other than Banyan Treatment Center. Now Banyan, if you're not familiar with it, let me just tell you, they offer detox, intensive inpatient, outpatient, partial hospitalization. They have specializations in faith and recovery and mental health. And they have centers in Florida, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Massachusetts. It's where I would send someone who wants treatment they can trust. They take insurance, they've been around for a long time, and if this sounds like something you need, please, please, please give them a call. You can reach them at 1-855-298-8379. That's 855-298-8379. You can also just reach out to me directly 
Anna at AnnaDavid.com. I do not want you getting in an accident trying to write that phone number down. So if you didn't get it, let me know. I can put you in touch with them. I please urge you, if you need help, get help today at Banyan. Well, hello, hello. I'm here with Annie Grace. Um, say hi. I, I never know which way to point. That's Annie. Welcome here. Um, Thank you. Um, and anybody who's here yet, please chime in. If you like the people in your life, I always say this, please go share this with them. If you don't like the people in your life and it's the holidays, sometimes we're reminded of the people we don't like. Make sure you don't share this with them because you don't want them to have this treat. For anybody who does not know, Annie Grace is the best-selling author of This Naked Mind, which she self-published and then was released by, um, now I've already forgotten the publisher. Was it Simon Schuster? No, Penguin. Penguin. Now, yep. has The Alcohol Experiment, which is available for pre-order now on Amazon. If you order it now, you will get it by the end of the year. It's a pretty bold statement, but it's true. Um, Annie's unique approach has helped thousands of people change their relationship with alcohol by looking at their subconscious beliefs about drinking that are at odds with their conscious desire to live alcohol free. Now, this is a great one because um, when it comes to drinking and however we handle sobriety, we all are kind of in our own lanes and have our own experiences. And I, I have, I know what works for me, but I have no idea what works for anybody else. And so I am so excited to talk to Annie about, about her four years of not drinking, um, how she came to see this, how she started really a movement around this. And then as writers, we, I want to, you know, gal pal gossip about self-publishing versus traditional publishing, which we were starting to do before you guys got here. So Annie, Hi. Um, Hi. So let's talk about This Naked Mind, your drinking, and how this movement came to be. You were a high-level, um, very high-functioning lady who drank. Yes. Okay. I was. Um, I didn't really drink a ton in college. And interestingly, I got my first real corporate job. My husband and I moved to Manhattan. And I was taken aside by my boss and asked why I wasn't really showing up at happy hour. And I was like, oh, I don't really drink very much. And he's like, okay, it's not about the drinking. Let me tell you a secret about life. You're a newbie, you're in New York City. You have to show up at happy hour. It's where the deals are done. It's like the golf course for corporate America. I was like, okay, thank you so much. And so I started showing up at happy hour and I had like this method. I would drink a glass of water and then a glass of, or a glass of wine and then a glass of water, a glass of wine, glass of water, just to make sure that I would like keep my head because everybody was, you know, almost twice my age. They were all men and I didn't want to make a fool out of myself. And so I was really intentional about it. I had times when I would go and literally throw up the last glass of wine just to drink more wine so that I could like not get drunk. So it was just this sort of ridiculous thing. But I got really good at drinking and networking. And then fast forward a decade and I got promoted multiple times. And I was now instead of just head of marketing for North America, which was what that job was. I was the youngest vice president in this company at the time. Um, I was now global head of marketing. I was in charge of 28 countries. I was flying internationally to two countries a month. And I had two young boys at home. And it was um, 
pretty much two bottles a night. Like it was, we were drinking boxed wine, so I couldn't tell how much I was drinking purposefully because it was always a bottle was never enough. So we switched to boxes. And I think those are four bottles and my husband and I would put one away every every other day. And um, does your husband still drink now? It's interesting. So he, when I stopped drinking, he kept drinking for about a year and a half. And then I was just getting ready to publish this Naked Mind. And I was like, hey, you have to read this because I talk about our sex life. Like you, before this goes on the shelves, like you need to know what it says. And so he sat down and he read the book and he's like, wow. And um, then his drinking went from pretty much every night to like maybe on occasion. And then six months later, he just, I was like, wow, when's the last time you had to drink? And he hadn't had a drink in three or four months. And then we were at a concert and I was like, hey, do you want me to get you a beer? And He's like, no, I think I'm good. And then all of a sudden, one day he's like, you know what? Just don't drink anymore. And so I'd say it was about a year and a half to two years that he just hasn't had a drink either. But it was never like he put up the flag. He's never like, I'm not a drinker and I'm sober. He just was like, just kind of happened. And now now he will tell you he doesn't drink. And he will say that if he's asked, but forever. He was like, just so you know, I'm never giving up drinking. <laughs> I was like, that's cool. Like, it's all about me. It's not about you. And um, over time, it changed. So, so this idea of alcoholism and addiction, where do you stand on that? So, I mean, I always like to kind of do my best to look at science and combine that with my personal experience. So let me attack this from a few different angles. About six years before I stopped drinking, one of my closest friends in the entire world, we had been friends since we were 19 years old, drank together all the time. She up and told me, hey, you guys, I, I'm, I'm done drinking. I'm going to AA and I'm done. And I was like, oh my gosh, Kristen, like, what, what about me? Like, I drink with you, we drink all the time. And, and she's like, no, no, Annie, our drinking is really different. Like, you don't know it, but it's really different. And I know this now, like, I understand myself. I am an alcoholic and you're not. And um, so I really took that as like, I was scared of my own drinking six years before I actually got serious about stopping drinking. And, but I also took that as like, okay, well, I'm not an alcoholic. So I guess, I guess that's not for me. And it was weird because it was kind of like, okay, well then permission to carry on. And I didn't see, I didn't see what to do then. Like if I didn't fit into this alcoholic bucket, then where was I gonna go? What was I gonna like? if I cared about my drinking, then like there's nothing. And so I was like, okay, you know, that's interesting. Um, and so I just kind of carried on with it. I read um, something from the Center for Disease Control recently, and it said only 10% of excessive drinkers. So people, women for women, excessive is eight drinks a week for men, it's 15. And only 10% of that group is actually clinically to alcohol or falls into that like really um, dependent category. And so that that wasn't me. Like I could stop drinking, you know, we'd go to my in-laws, they didn't drink, we'd go there for a week or so, it was no problem to stop. Um, but, you know, when I was trying to stop drinking at home and I, and I finally, like I'd say five years after that incident, I said, okay, like this is, it's, this is not who I wanna be. I'm, I'm not happy with myself anymore. I'm doing things like, um, there was a story where I sprayed beer all over my kids in London and it was completely on accident, but it was also 10 in the morning and it was just heartbreaking for me. And there was another time when my son wanted to get on my lap and my lips were purple. And so he told me that he actually didn't want to sit with me anymore because I smelled bad and I had purple lips. And so all of these things kept mounting. And so when I started to take a really good look at it, I was like, okay, well, it should be easy then. I should just be able to stop or cut back. 
just really was my intention at the time. And it wasn't easy. So what happened was every I could do it. I could stop. But I always felt deprived, like I was missing out, grumpy, upset, you know, counting the days until I was going to allow, like if I took a break for a few weeks or a few days or a few months, it was always this like really intense inner, inner trauma. And then um, a very interesting thing happened to me at the exact same time. I had really bad back pain ever since my second son was born and it was just insane and I couldn't get rid of it. I had traction, I had muscle relaxants, I was doing acupuncture, chiropractic, everything. Literally probably spent thousands of dollars trying to get rid of it. Nothing would work in the long term. It would all work in the short term and then it would come back. Um, and finally, somebody recommended a book to me called Healing Back Pain by Dr. John Sarno. In that book, it was like, at the beginning of the book, he says, look, what can happen is that there's nothing wrong with your back. Yeah, you might have had an injury, but your back heals because it's strong. But your mind says, guess what? I can use that pain to deflect you from painful thoughts that are happening, right? So if you're thinking something like, God, I hate this baby, it won't stop crying. Like your mind says, you're a nice person, Annie. You cannot think that you hate your baby. And so it says, no, no, no guess what, flare up your back pain because you're not gonna focus on the fact that you had that really negative and toxic thought about your child. And so in the introduction of this book, he says you can, under, you can entertain this theory, but you actually have to read a 300 page book for me to talk to your subconscious mind, not just your conscious mind. And when you do that, your pain will go away. And I was like, totally skeptical. Okay, call BS, no way. But then I read it and sure enough, like I was like almost instantly pain-free and it was incredible. It was the point in my life where I was like, the power of my mind is amazing. And so I actually reached out to Dr. Sarno and say, hey, I'm struggling with addiction and I have this, I just had this idea. I was like, I think that consciously I want to drink less, but subconsciously I just haven't gotten the memo. And, um, and so back to your question about alcoholism, I think that there's like, I think I was very much emotionally and psychologically dependent on alcohol. I was never, I never had any real intense withdrawal symptoms when I would quit or when I would take breaks, but emotionally and psychologically, I was really dependent. And the truth was that it, it wouldn't have mattered even if I, if I was having, you know, if I needed to go through a really intense detox and have withdrawal symptoms, if I was still psychologically so dependent on it, I would have never been free. So I think that, um, I reached out to Dr. Sarno. He put me in touch with a man named Steve Ozanich who wrote the book, The Great Pain Deception. And Steven got on a Zoom with me or, and just talked to me for like two and a half hours and said, oh my gosh, like, yes, Dr. Sarno always said this would work for addiction. This is very much similar mechanisms happening in the brain. I mean, the key is to really uncover and change your beliefs around alcohol and understand why you're, why you're drinking. And through that, I just had the confidence to say, okay, right, like, and I ironically, and this is probably totally weird and controversial, but I didn't even know what I didn't know, but I stopped trying to stop drinking. <laughs> and I said, you know what? I'm going to put all my time and effort into figuring out why. Why is it that I could have a good time in college without a drink, but now I feel totally deprived if I can't drink? Why is it that at one time one beer would be like totally fine and take it or leave it, but now unless I have a glass of wine with me by my bed that I am literally in my hand until I fall asleep, I feel like something's wrong in my life. And I said, I'm gonna answer these questions. And I do it in this way of like really trying to understand both consciously and subconsciously what's happening here. And um, that took about a year. And at the end of the year, I stopped drinking. And it was, my husband's like, what? Who are you? What have you done with my life? And um, 
And so, and I realized I have all these journals, all these journals from this. And I typed it all also because I was always traveling. So I was always on my laptop doing this research, typing out my findings. And so I just put out this really dirty PDF of, you know, completely full of typos, tons of mess, but like, look guys, here's, here's my journey. Here's what I found. I put it up on a website, no opt-in, no email address. I had no idea how to do that. I just figured out how to put a PDF on a website and um, it got 20,000 downloads in three weeks. And it was like, I started getting letters from all over the world, like, oh my gosh, this works for me too. And so that was like, all right, I have to publish this and then we can get into the publishing thing. But um, basically I called a few like agents and they're like, yeah, well it takes 18 to 24 months. I was like, okay, well people need this now. Like I'm not, even if, and, and by the way, I had no platform. So I probably wasn't gonna get a deal anyway, but I was like, no matter what, like I cannot wait that long. So I, I shut the door pretty quickly on traditional publishing and said, okay, right. How am I gonna figure out how to put this on Amazon myself? And were you already a writer? Yes, because you had reported for different publications, right? No, the New York Daily News um, thing happened after actually this Naked Mind. So I wasn't a writer. I, I, I'm a insane journaler, like all the time, every day, always have been, right? So I um, journal here, journal there, they're all different, like always writing, but never a writer. And how long did it take you? Did it, was it one of those things where you sort of felt like you had all this research, personal experience and you were almost channeling um, or was it a challenge to write it? Oh, so the writing, it was easy. Like I, everything, I took one month to bullet it all out and then one month to fill it all in. And then I was like, right, this is great. And I actually, thankfully, very thankfully, um, one of my friend's moms is a published author. And I was like, hey, would you take a look at this for me? And she read it and she's like, you need an editor. And I was like, okay, um, for, for typos. And she's like, no, like, and she explained to me the editing process and I was like, okay so she's like if you're gonna invest any money invest in editing so i hired this editing company that she recommended and i remember getting the first uh what's it called the the very first edit where the, the developmental edit back and oh devastation <laughs> stake through my heart lay in bed for three days basically it was so intense because she's like i don't believe you so i had this theory but i hadn't done like a lot of like I hadn't put in citations. I hadn't, I had all this knowledge that I'd gained and then I wrote a narrative. And she's like, I just don't believe you. Like you haven't convinced me. And um, she's like this book, like she's a 20 something drinker. And she's like, I think some alcohol is healthy for me. And you're trying to tell me that it's basically like not good at all. And so um, actually I don't believe you. And so it was so intense, but I'm so happy and thankful for that experience too, because that led me to, actually heeding her advice, spending a few months researching, getting all of the citations, making sure my facts were airtight, putting it all together. And it's such a better book because of that. But that was the first of five different lay layers of editing. And that process, I mean, I, it was it was way more intense than writing the book. I feel like first draft to like off the shelf was like, oh my gosh, that's so much work. It was crazy. Yes, but you can't get there until you have the first draft. I think the first draft is the, is the hardest. And, you know, it was Dorothy Parker that said writing is rewriting. Um, yeah. And I, she was the one who said, I don't enjoy writing. I enjoy having written. But um, but yes, I mean, that comes up a lot with the books that, that we publish with Light Hustler Publishing. They're just like, well, well, here's the book. Like, what do you mean, edit? What, what is that? And I think a lot of people will think because they can talk it's sort of the same thing as writing. 
and it's it's very very different. So you, uh, well, I had a question. So when your editor said that to you, I enjoy alcohol. Did that first draft sort of say alcohol is bad for everybody, and that's what your research proved was that that's just simply not true? No, my research proved that that is true. <laughs> that alcohol is bad for everybody. But the first draft said that without the research. So it said that in a, like, that's what I discovered. I discovered that it, everything that I thought, every, I mean, my process was this. I made a list of every single reason I drank. And I said, and I went through, is this true? And, you know, is it actually, and I asked, like, I looked internally and I said, you know, am I more relaxed? the next day after drinking. If drinking relaxes me, I should be more relaxed the next day, am I? No, <laughs> I'm in a much worse position. You know, if drinking makes me happy, I should be happier overall. At the time I was on three antidepressant medications that I wasn't on when I wasn't a heavy drinker. So like all this internal evidence was starting to like, you know, come apart around this idea for me that duct tape was like the, or that alcohol was like the duct tape that was holding my life together. Um, but then I said, okay, but what about the science? Like, what does that say? And so I said, okay, does alcohol relax you? And there's an amazing study that was done on mice and mice are very similar to human beings for, for scientific purposes. And basically they took two sets of mice. One of them they had drink for like a mouse amount, you know, for a month and one of them they had sober for a month. And then they put them both through a very stressful um, obstacle course. And they hooked them up to all sorts of electrodes and whatnot. And the mice that had not been drinking were so much better able to deal with every single stressor coming their way. And the mice that had been drinking were completely crippled to deal with stress. And they were, all of their bodies were like, they were over in overdrive. It was, it was very, very clear. And so, um, but I hadn't included all of that in that first draft. I had really just said like, look, alcohol doesn't relax you. Here's some antidotes to prove the fact. And she's like, okay, I don't believe you. So it wasn't until I had to really approach it as more of a research paper. Cause I hadn't, I hadn't done that for myself. I had read these studies, internalized them and then written antidotes about them. But I had to read the studies, take all the little notes, you know, take my little note cards, put in the uh, citations and say, okay, here's what happened. Here's, here's what happened. And and then actually um, the same woman, Catherine, amazing woman, she stopped drinking after she read the book, finally. Wow, converting yeah. husband, editor, watch out. If you enjoy drinking, don't, don't start interacting with Annie. Um, I have that, there's literally an Amazon review that says that, like, if you like to drink, do not read this book. <laughs> yes, and um, you know, and they say that about 12 step too, it's like a head full of AA and a, and a belly full of drinking, like you'll never enjoy again. What yeah. do you believe alcoholism exists? Um, I think that there's like definitely people who are very clinically dependent on alcohol. So I think, you know, and who knows, we're changing all of this semantics all the time. So I feel like who knows what, but right now, you know, in the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Alcohol Use Disorder, and it's a spectrum. And if I take that test, I was in the like mild to moderate spectrum, whereas if my, um, my sister-in-law's mother took that test who she passed away from alcohol, like alcoholism. There's no doubt she was in the severe. Every single question would have been a yes for her of those questions. And so I think that, yes, like in, in terms of alcohol being something that can come into your body and change your brain to the point where it actually manifests as a very severe disease and kills you. Yes, 
that happens, no doubt in my mind. But this idea that people aren't born alcoholic, remain alcoholic after they're, they quit drinking, do you not subscribe to that? Well, I think it's interesting because I think that um, we probably, I think there are instances like if fetal alcohol syndrome where you are actually born with a dependence to alcohol. So yes, I think that is absolutely true. I also think that, um, however, for most people, they wouldn't become addicted to alcohol if they never drank alcohol in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I think we often put the blame on the individual when the blame is pretty squarely in my eyes on the substance. We are drinking as a society in excessive quantities, a highly, highly addictive toxin. And so for us to say, but certain people can drink a highly addictive toxin and not get addicted. And certain people are gonna be addicted to this highly addictive toxin from step one, I think kind of misses, um, it, it does a few things that I, I feel like can be really negative because for me, I used somebody telling me I'm not an alcoholic as an excuse to keep drinking. And I wish I would have gotten those six years back. Those were my baby years with my kids, right? And who knows if I would have, if she would have said, yes, you're an alcoholic, come with me to AA. I don't know what trajectory my life would have been on. I mean, I might've gone and I might've, like you said, a head full of AA might've been like, no, I can't do this anymore. And it really could have changed my life, but um, that's, that wasn't the response. And so I think that this idea of you either are an alcoholic or aren't an alcoholic can be scary for people who are questioning it, who you know might not fit in that um, in that sort of box. But I also think that there are you know when you drink enough over time, and again, there's studies in animals that prove this. Like if they can get people addicted, animals addicted to a substance just by giving them enough of it in the right circumstances over the right length of time. I also think there's this whole fascinating body of research that really talks about this relationship with, with trauma and pain and addictive substances, because addictive substances act very differently in the brain when you're drinking and you're not in trauma and pain, or when you're drinking and you are in trauma and pain. Um, they, uh, alcohol is an anesthetic. It actually was used to be used in surgeries. That's what, that was before we had other anesthetics that are deemed much safer. They used to use alcohol to amputate and to do surgery and stuff like that. And they stopped because things are safer, but that just shows that both emotionally and physically alcohol numbs pain. And so if you're in very severe pain and somebody hands you something that's like, here's a numbing agent. And by the way, you can buy it at any uh, corner store and it's widely accessible and nobody's going to judge you for having it and you have pain. I mean, how can you not right. start to drink to excess? I mean, I don't even understand on what planet because we've made this thing that, yes, it's a numbing agent, but it can absolutely destroy your life. So um, I think, I don't know if I'm... <laughs> <laughs> Let me know if you want me to be clear about the question. I don't know if that was clear enough or not. I kind of, what oh. was, okay. Well, perfectly clear and so well articulated. Um, I love it. Um, Chris Joseph is saying, can you guys write down the name of that book, the name of that writer? And it's John Sarno, S-A-R-N-O, and it's called Healing Back Pain. Um, it's interesting. I read it too. I had chronic back pain and I this I have a terrible habit of thinking that after the introduction in the first chapter, I understand everything about a book and I lose patience um, with reading it. So I never finished it. And perhaps as a result, my back pain did not go away. But I actually go to I call her lovingly my witch um, and she's a healer and she literally touches my body. I'll, I'll be thinking about something traumatic because I have trauma. 
in my childhood and she will touch my head and go, Oh, so what happened? Like, like when you were 16, I go, how did you know I was thinking that? So I'm a big believer in, you know, I live in Los Angeles. I bathe my crystals in the moonlight. I've said that before. So, so it's like, I, I'm a little hippy dippy, but, um, but it's the first thing that's, I tried everything for my pain and it's the first thing that's really worked. Um, Sarah had asked, uh, is it normal to get embarrassed when you write? And that brings me, uh, you know, this is sort of an adjunct question. Did you have hesitations about sharing your story so publicly? It was really interesting because when I was, I think the best thing you can do, Sarah, is to write like you're writing for yourself and decide later if you're going to share it. And that's what I did accidentally. I was writing to free myself. I, I was insanely successful. And not to say that to brag, but I just had an incredible job. And I had no intention of leaving my job. <laughs> I had no idea that there was going to be this little passion project that like tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, everything you've been striving for for the last decade, like we're going to do that and you're going to go here and like become like a, you know, I mean, that was no intention. So I wasn't writing for anybody but me when I was writing. And I truly think if you can get into that headspace and allow yourself the permission to write for only you. And I think I had a lot of practice with all this journaling, right? Like, I mean, somebody, I, I will burn my journals before I die <laughs> because... They're only for me and nobody else. And um, my husband knows that if you ever read my journal, like I would probably divorce him. And so like, I, I feel really safe in writing just for me. And then, but I do then go back and reread some stuff when I have a little bit of distance from it. And that's really key too, because you can't do it when you're feeling it. I feel like the best writing comes when you're feeling it, but you can't release it into the world when you're feeling it. You have to release it into the world after you've processed it. And after you've come to a point where you're ready to like, actually let it be in the world and so i do go back to journals from that point in my life and i do share stuff now um but and in the book too i, I was writing that completely for me and then a significant amount of time kind of passed where i was i think it was like 13 or 14 months before i actually was like putting it out um for anybody else and i think that's really important so basically you had already had this, this crazy success with the PDF. You upload the book. You didn't actually have the email addresses for those people who loved the PDF, right? So what did you do? How did it catch on? Oh, it's so funny. So basically one of the people who read the PDF happened to be an internet marketer and he's like, look, you have to get email addresses. So about two weeks before I released the book, I actually did put an email address thing. So I got 2000 email addresses in the two weeks before I, I released the book. I emailed it to them that it was there. Um, the book started selling, I'd say five to 10 copies a day. And I was like super excited. I was like, I don't even know who these people are. Five whole people who want to read this book. This is amazing. Life is good. And you know, still no intention of quitting my job, no intention of doing anything different. I just now written this book. And, um, and at my job at the exact same time, the company who had been letting me live in the US for this London based company, as long as my family and I were there like, you know, three months of the year, finally said they had a change in management and they said, we need you to move to London. And I was like, oh, I love Colorado. I love London, but I love Colorado more. And I have this book. And so it was kind of this crossroads where I said, okay, what am I gonna do? Am I gonna double down on like trying to do something with this book and take this, um, take this thing or am I gonna go for it? And um, thank you, Wendy, that's so sweet. Um, am I gonna go for it and, <clears throat> and just moved to London. Anyway, we decided to to leave the job. 
And that happened all at the same time. So then I was like, okay, now, right, I have to get serious about this. And so I was in marketing. It was, it's very different than this kind of marketing. I was in like corporate branding and stuff. I was the head of the digital team, but I had a team reporting to me and I was just reporting numbers to the board. So it was a very different thing. I had to all of a sudden go really granular, but I did what I had done. I was like, okay, right. Like who, who is it that's looking for this book? And I really started to visualize the person reading the book. And I started to say, okay, what sort of things can I start to do? Um, I started blogging, so I started a blog. Um, I started actually just reaching out to different people and seeing if, if they'd get on, like if I could get on um, on their podcast or, or be you know, part of their <clears throat> publication. I think I reached out to After Party. I was like just sending stuff out all over the place. And yeah, but I was nobody, I wasn't known at all. And so I'm sure it never even reached you. And it was just like this thing of like, okay, lots of different things. And I um, did something that I think is really unique and that I really actually struggled with the traditional publishers is I felt very strongly about just giving the book away for free. Um, so I had a free PDF, 100% free, come to my website, download it, um, free ebook. And then interestingly, I think what happened from there is people would either tell their friends about it or they would get the PDF and then want the paperback. And so like paperback books started. And my husband was like, what are you doing? Now we're trying to like make a living at this. How can you just give your book away for free? I was like, not only do I feel it in my heart of hearts that this book needs to like be able to be given away for free, but like actually we're selling books more when I give it for free. And so um, I just had that and I got it posted in the Reddit Stop Drinking group as a free PDF download. And I got it posted in like Hello Sunday Morning and a, and a few other places. And it just kind of like, grew in momentum for um, probably two years until I had sold enough books to where uh, I was a pub approached first by HarperCollins and then I got an agent and then it actually went to auction among the top five kind of publishing houses. Big five. Yes. And now you have a second book. We talked about this in the beginning, but, and it's available now on Amazon. How is this different? What do you get into in the second book? So the second book is a really cool story, actually. I um, just got my pre-order copy, it's Alcohol Experiment. So that's a weird name, right? Um, the reason it's called The Alcohol Experiment is this is what's happened to me. And I had this, you know, it was, it was really just one of these things, but I was, I was in this habit of reading all the Amazon reviews all the time. So I was getting on there to read Amazon reviews one day about a year and a half ago. And there was a review uh, from a guy and he said, Look, I read this book for my, I picked this book up for my brother who's really struggling with drinking. And now guess what? I don't even know if I like beer anymore. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Five stars. And I was like, wow, like there's actually people who are even further on the spectrum, but for whom alcohol is still creating problems that they're not even aware of. And I started to think, how could we lower the barrier to entry to this conversation even more? You know, I mean, I got a lot of kind of flack about the name of my first book because it's called This Naked Mind Control Alcohol. And at the end of the book, I say the only way to control alcohol is not to put it in your body. <laughs> but it is a bit of a bait and switch. I've gotten some flack. I've gotten oodles of thank you letters saying, thank you so much. If that wasn't the title of your book, I would have never, ever picked it up in a million years. I would have never picked it up. And so this book has changed my life. But I, because we are not, when we're when we're drinking, we're thinking alcohol is the glue that's holding our lives together. And we're not looking necessarily for a way to quit until things get really bad. We're looking for a way to cut back. And if that leads you to quitting, I think that that's, um, you know, really amazing. But yeah, so it was not really intended to be a bait and switch, but really intended to be like, what would I have picked up 
at that moment in my life. I would never have picked up a stop drinking book in a million years. I would have picked up a book that said control alcohol. And so, um, and so I started thinking, well, how can I make this conversation even more mainstream? How can I lower the barrier to entry even more? You know, right now we ask ourselves, do I have a problem? Am I an alcoholic? And those are such scary questions. I was like, how can we just start asking ourselves, would my life be happier if I didn't drink? And so um, at the same time, I got an email from a woman and she had done the whole 30. And she said, you know what? I tried the whole 30 multiple times. I always failed because of the alcohol until I found your book. And now that I found your book, I'm able to do the whole 30. Thank you very much. And so I said, okay, like this is too much of a coincidence. I, I literally think those things happen in the same day. And I was like, okay, we need it. I want to do this 30 day. And that's what it, it's structured. It's like every single day is a day. And so it's for people to stop on day one. Whereas this naked mind is written very much in the way that I stopped drinking, where I stopped trying to stop. I stopped with all the noise in my head around. I'm, I'm going to, you know, only have two drinks tonight. And then I break that, that promise to myself and I beat myself up and I, was in this just huge shame cycle, unable to trust myself, unable to feel any control. I, I stopped all that to say, okay, I'm just gonna learn. And that's what this naked mind actually asked you to do. The book in the beginning says like, look, like if you're still drinking, don't worry, read the book sober, but don't worry, just get the information, just get the information. That's the claim. Whereas this is the exact opposite. It's really a lot of the same information um, but it's exactly in the opposite way where it's for people who definitely aren't, you know, I have a big disclaimer. This is not for somebody who's going to go into withdrawal symptoms or needs to be detoxed. It is absolutely for people who are just, you know, curious about taking a break and do stop on day one. But then every day of the 30 days, you get some more of, of this information about, okay, does alcohol relax you? Let's look at the science. Is it really better? You do really have better sex drunk. Let's look at the science, you know, and, um, and that's really, I guess the difference. Well, we have got to wrap up at this point. And I apologize so much that my dryer has been going and making these terrible sounds. Um, Annie, thank you so, so, so much. Um, anybody who is interested, the naked, this Naked Mind, you do still have a free chapter download on your website, correct? Yes, yes. And, and I can't, I wish I could still give it away for free. It's just that now that it's traditionally published, they have the law, <laughs> they have the last word in it. But um, here, I'm just going to put that website up there where you can. That's right. Correct. This naked mind dot com. Um, yeah, perfect. So, yes, um, I'm just so and you can st still so you can get the first chapter of that. Check it out. You can order the alcohol experiment. And um, yes. And, and by the way, if you are interested in uh, telling your own story and you're like, well, I'm really not a writer. Uh, definitely check out lighthustlerpublishing.com. That's what we do for people. So with that, um, happy holidays, everybody. Annie, thank you again. And um, stay safe. And um, I'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you. Bye.